You see, though, the interesting truth behind that, which is memory is indeed the mother of artistic invention. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Julie, I forget, what are we supposed to be talking about in this podcast? That That is really a great way to start this podcast because, of course, what we're supposed to be talking about is the goodness of memory, something that all of us who are getting older <laughs> hope that we can retain for a lot longer. Maybe we should be more concerned, Andrew. <laughs> Maybe. Well, yeah. I know that this, of course, is something that you talk about in many of your talks, Nurturing Competent Communicators, which you just gave recently at an online conference. You've been doing a lot more online conferences lately. Oh, gosh, lately. more than I can count. Yes. But we got some feedback from one of the participants who happened actually to be a student. She said, Mr. Poudois, thank you for sharing your knowledge on communication with us today. I learned a lot through the lecture. I really liked how you said that you cannot speak or write what you do not know. My mom is having my brother and me memorize and recite poetry this semester, so I look forward to applying what I learned to that today and have a wonderful day. And I think probably her mother maybe have had already listened to that talk, Nurturing Competent Communicators, mm-hmm. saw the value of it. This is probably a teenager. You know, Sounds like it to well. me, and I'm particularly pleased with the correct grammar. Yeah. You know, my mother is having my brother and me learn poetry. Yeah. Because sometimes people think, well, you always say my brother and I, only in that case, it was the object. Right. So it needed to be in the accusative or objective case. So uh, I thought, well, there's a student who both understands the value of furnishing the mind, which is what I was talking about, Mm -hmm. as well as having studied enough grammar to get that little nuance correct. Right, right. So the goodness of memory. What what are we talking about today? Well, you know, I grew up playing music. Mm -hmm. I, I was a Suzuki method student, one of the very first in mm-hmm. Southern California back in like 1964. Here's, a, here's some Julie Walker trivia that uh-huh. probably no one knows unless now they listen to this podcast. They will know this. I too played an instrument growing up. Can you guess what it was? I would think it was some horrible thing like saxophone. No, no. but I did. Flute? My son did play saxophone. I did not play Trumpet? the flute. You'll never guess. I wanted to play the piano. My uh-huh. baby brother got the piano lessons. Oh. I learned to play 
the accordion. Accordion. Well, that's that's <laughs> not bad. Yeah. No, but it's not a piano. But anyway, yes, memorizing music is a big part of what you do when you're doing a recital. Well, yes, and and one of the distinctives of the Suzuki approach mm-hmm. is that the children, uh, if if properly nurtured, will retain their memorized repertoire. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, you learn a piece, you play it a few times for a few people, and then you forget it while you learn a new piece and play that a few times for a few people, and then you forget that while you learn a new piece, and you can continue on for five years, mm-hmm. and you only know, like, one piece. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas and in Japan— that one piece, not well. Yeah. In Japan, it was very evident that, with little exception, all the students could play all of the pieces that they had ever learned in their whole life. Mm-hmm. So they they uh, built up this huge repertoire of memorized music. And, of course, what that does is it, it furnishes them, it provides for them all the little bits and pieces of musical information that will then inspire mm-hmm. and make more effective attempts at improvisation or composition. Right. So I, I grew up doing that. And I remember um, my mother used to use a particular expression that you don't hear too often today. We might hear people say, oh, you have to memorize. But my mother never said that. And she was a, a music teacher. She always said, you must learn it by heart. Mm-hmm. Learn it by heart. And uh, what does that mean? You know, And that's a whole contemplation right there. Like when you memorize something, whether it's scripture or poetry or an excerpt of a famous speech or dance moves or a martial arts form, you know, it comes into your soul. It's a part of who you are from that time forward. And that's why I think it's so frustrating when we forget things we used to know because we feel like, you know, I've lost a part of myself there. I remember, I, I don't remember who said it, but it was some random famous author, you know, basically said, we are the sum total of our memory. You know, if we forgot everything, if we had total amnesia, we wouldn't even know who we are. And so that connection between memory and identity, and then the extension of that into the conscious use of the faculty of memory, and the the activity of the will in order to inform the memory are all such uh, fascinating things to contemplate. Okay. And so I think you just gave us an outline for what we're going to be talking about. Well, we, you know, we did uh, a series of podcasts earlier on the five canons of rhetoric. Yes. And we think of those initially as invention, what to say, arrangement, how to order those ideas, Mm -hmm. elocution, what words, sentences, and devices to use. Um, But then there's also memory and delivery. Okay. So that memory is traditionally one of the five things that everyone would would study and cultivate and grow in the process of learning to write and speak well. And do you think that's so because so much of the communication was all oral? Absolutely. Back in the day and a lot of people didn't know how to read. So Right. And there's two aspects of memory. One is the the furnishing of the mind, and we've mm-hmm. talked about that in various ways. And the other one are the techniques that you can use to speed up the process 
of memorization oh. so that if you want to write a speech and, and practice it and memorize it and then be able to go give it, there's actually strategies you can use to assist your memory in that. Now, uh, people today do not need this because we have teleprompters. <laughs> well, and you know what? It was only recently, probably within the last 10 years, that I realized that they're using teleprompters. I thought that during the debates or during, you know, the State of the Union address, they had memorized their speeches. And mm. I was so impressed with how smart our presidents are. Yeah. And it turns out they're just reading. Well, and those teleprompters are, are pretty high tech because they're basically completely transparent mm -hmm. on one side. Mm -hmm. So it just looks, I don't know, like bulletproof glass or something. I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure. But on the other side, they can, you know, see. I remember reading a a commentary by an Indian man hmm. when uh, President Obama went to India. Oh, sure. And he gave a speech and he used a teleprompter and how people were kind of appalled that he hadn't taken the time, oh. you know, and, and the care hmm. to practice and remember his speech without the aid of technology. But it's a perspective of culture and whatnot. Well, and, you know, the president of the United States is a very busy man. Absolutely. And it takes time to memorize things. Yeah. Well, so... And, and just for the record, listeners, Andrew, as far as I know, has never used a teleprompter. And yet <laughs> oftentimes when you give talks at conventions, you're just doing it from memory. Well, yes, but I have the benefit of repetition. And mm -hmm. I actually have a system mm -hmm. that I use, which I can share. Oh, good. I, I would like to go back to the actual word, however. Oh, I think the we word can, however? No, the word memory. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because we, we can learn a lot by the study of the original meanings and the origins mm -hmm. of words. So if you look at Greek mythology... Mm -hmm. There was this goddess named Mnemosyne, and that's actually spelled M-N-E-M-O-S-Y-N-E. -E. Link in the show notes. <laughs> Mnemosyne, and so it's it's connected with that weird spelling of the word mnemonic, right? which starts with that M-N. Mm -hmm. And mnemonic, of course, is pertaining to memory. Mm -hmm. Well, who was this Mnemosyne? Well, first of all, she was the daughter of Uranus and Gaia. Okay. Okay, so that's that's the heavens and the earth. Okay. Like, so in the beginning, there was the heavens and the earth. Right. And they gave birth to memory. Oh. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So that's the first interesting point. But even more fascinating is she was the mother of the muses. Memory was the mother of the muses. Exactly. Hmm. Now, what are the muses? Those were you know, the gods, so to speak, that inspired the arts. Mm -hmm. And there were nine muses, mm -hmm. and each of them was responsible for inspiring a different type of art. Mm -hmm. So when you see, uh, you know, a great ancient epic poem, such as the Iliad, and it begins with the words, Sing, O goddess of the anger of the son of Peleus, blah, blah, blah. Who's that goddess? Well, that's the poet invoking the muse, right, mm -hmm. to assist with the creation of art. Okay. So when you look at it, you know, outside the context of myth, you see, though, the interesting truth behind that, which is memory is indeed the mother of artistic invention. And it goes back to the comment that 
teenage girl commented on, mm-hmm. you can't get something out of your mind that isn't in there to begin with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can find things and then put together this unique combination and permutation, and that's our human creativity, but we can't produce something from nothing. Right. We need the supernatural for that, and that mm-hmm. was the idea of the of the Greek. So that idea of looking at the reflection of truth and natural order and knowing in the mythology. There is a guy, I don't know much about him except that he was some kind of Italian noble who wrote various poems. And there's really nothing particular about this guy except for the fact that he he said one sentence that is still being quoted today. Okay. And I'm hoping, I mean, if I could say one sentence and people are still talking about it 450 years from now. Right. <laughs> um, Wherever I am at the time, I think would be somewhat satisfying. Mm-hmm. But I, I love this sentence. It is, It has been mistakenly attributed to St. Basil the Great, but no. Evidently, it was this guy, Giambattista Basile, who said, Memory is the cabinet of the imagination, the treasury of reason, the registry of conscience, and the council chamber of thought. Wow, that's beautiful. It is. Uh, And you think about the imagery here. What do we have? We have a cabinet, Mm -hmm. a treasury, a registry, and a chamber. Mm -hmm. So it's as though we have these rooms or containers. Mm -hmm. And inside those containers are all of the most important human qualities. Imagination, reason, conscience, thought. Say that whole sentence again. Memory is the cabinet of the imagination, Mm -hmm. the treasury of reason, the registry of conscience, and the council chamber of thought. And so we, we see that throughout all of history, people have had a great appreciation for this basic human faculty of memory. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's very interesting, you know, people talk about technology. Right. But what we kind of have to realize is that almost everything humans have created is a technology. Oh, okay. Sure. Right? And there's the legend of the king of Egypt and the god Thoth or okay. Thoth or Thoth. I don't know how people say it. Thoth. I always said Thoth. And this is told in, in Plato. So this legend, ancient, ancient times, the god Thoth came to the, the king of Egypt and said, I will give you this gift of being able to record in writing everything. And the king of Egypt essentially says, well, because you are the great god Thoth, I cannot reject your gift, but this will be a double-edged gift because while we will be able to record everything, it will also cause us to forget. In fact, I think I have the actual quote right here as recorded in Socrates and Plato, of course. This discovery of yours will create forgetfulness in learners' souls because they will not use their memories. They will trust to the external written characters and not remember of themselves. Oh, my goodness. That is so true. 
And so, yeah, because we write it down, we don't have to remember. I mean, we, we experience this every single day when we make a shopping list. Right. Right. But sometimes the act of writing it down helps to. Improve. Oh, yes. And there's all sorts of research mm-hmm. about that as mm-hmm. well. But uh, I think, you know, these days, particularly in the context of education, we, we almost need an apologetic mm-hmm. for the value of cultivating memory uh, because it's under this double attack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the attack by technology, it will, you know, atrophy the skill that it replaces. Mm-hmm. If, if we think, well, I don't need to remember that because I could just ask Siri. It's true. <laughs> well, then we don't make any effort to, to remember that. So consequently, kind of our universal uh, ability to retain kind of landmark bits of information that help us then connect new bits of information to previously known bits of information is degraded very significantly. So true. And then there's also the corresponding attack by the progressive educationists who say, well, memorizing is tedious. It's uh, uninspiring. It's not creative. It's you know, kind of began with Deweyism back in the mm-hmm. early 1900s, who, uh, you know, John Dewey, although he said many things that were, you know, true in certain contexts and valuable, he also had a very bad opinion of certain traditional things, one of those being rote learning. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, the word rote didn't have a negative connotation. Now it kind of means like painful, mindless, useless. Exactly. Yep. But it used to mean if if you learn something by rote, you just knew it. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to think or figure it out or go look for it. You knew it, mm-hmm. that that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Dewey had that idea that rote learning at best is a waste of time and at worst is you know, stifling creativity and killing kids' desire to learn and all that. Well, and I can understand perhaps some of his thinking because we have this term in business called opportunity cost. If you're spending time doing something, you can't spend time doing other things. But in this case, I can give you a real-life example of something that happened to me very recently. I went to visit the town of Charleston, South Carolina, and was in the historic town. We took a lot of tours. I did not know the actual date of when the Civil War began, and yet so much of our country's history is based on that. And if you know where that timeline is, which is 1861, which I now know, (laughs) 100 years before I was born, it just helps me to pivot so much better. So I feel like I lost opportunity by not knowing that date, more of the richness of our country's history mm-hmm. and some of the good and bad things that happened as a result of that significant event that happened on the very grounds of where I was standing in Fort Sumter, South Carolina. It was a very cool thing, and so it was definitely worth me knowing that, which I now know. Yes, and you know, it, it's interesting because there's both a continued criticism of teaching kids mm-hmm. things like names and dates mm-hmm. and and what you might just call raw information, Mm -hmm. versus some of the newer research showing that actually the more you know, the easier it is to learn new things. Exactly, yep. And that knowing stuff in general is de facto good. Mm -hmm. It improves reading comprehension. 
It allows for a more rapid contextualization of new information. And I'm just curious. I Did you ask Siri, when is the Civil War? When was the American Civil War? No, I Did you it. ask Denise? <laughs> I did not ask Denise. The tour guide shared it with me, which was really nice because that way I didn't have to show my ignorance to right. my friend Denise. I love tour guides mm-hmm. because they kind of specialize in in remembering and communicating mm-hmm. all sorts of interesting things that aren't necessarily vital to your well-being, but enrich your experience exactly. wherever you are. Mm-hmm. So I think we do kind of need this argument in favor of cultivating memory. Agreed. So there's uh, various aspects of the biology of memory. Oh, okay. We, we think that, and, and we talk about our brain and our mind as though most all of the information that we know is stored in our brain. And there's, you know, a lot of evidence. We can see very actively what neurons do. And so when we experience something, when we hear it, see it, or feel it, or when we move our body in a certain way, we're using networks of neurons in certain parts of the brain that through repetition will make connections with each other, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And through enough repetition, those neurons make you know, permanent or semi-permanent connections. So we think about the variables there. Uh, And I've talked about this before, but there's uh, frequency or what we might call repetition. Mm -hmm. And then there's intensity. Mm -hmm. And then there's duration, which would be persistence over time. Mm -hmm. So if if you kind of, you know, think back to when you were in third grade, if you can't, try fourth. Okay. Third grade is particularly fuzzy for me, so I guess that's one reason I always say third grade because I, I have so few concrete or specific memories from school mm-hmm. in third grade at that time. Now, think about something you can remember from third grade. Now, ask yourself, is this something important or something interesting? Most of the time, people will say interesting. Sometimes they'll say important. I, I remember two, two things, basically. One thing is I remember learning the multiplication tables. Okay. But it did not happen at school. Mm. I remember zero of doing math in school. What I do remember is my mom and dad with flashcards mm. teaching them, me the multiplication tables on the couch at home or even in the bathtub. <laughs> I remember sitting in the bathtub and my dad would get those multiplication cards and he would, mm-hmm. you know, flash them and I would practice multiplication. And and I, I know I learned it that year because what I wanted more than anything in the world was that super cool Cub Scout knife with all those different blades and, and functions. And And I knew that I had to master multiplication to get that Cub Scout knife. So I was extremely motivated, not because I could care at all about whether six times seven is 42, but because I wanted the thing. So he used a principle of motivation, which we know as contrived relevancy. Yes. Listen to podcasts on 
four forms of relevancy. Actually, I think we called it motivation. Well, we did a whole series, yeah, like three podcasts on motivation. Mm -hmm. And so I remember learning that. Mm -hmm. The only other memory, I can't remember the teacher or any of the kids. Mm -hmm. I have virtually no image of the classroom or anything at all, Mm -hmm. except that I I stapled my finger. (laughs) Now, that's not the significant thing. You could staple your finger and forget it. But what sticks with me is that I said to the teacher, I stapled my finger. And she said, no, you just got a paper cut. And I said, no, I stapled my finger. I know I stapled my finger. She said, no, I think you just got a paper. And to this day, (laughs) I am outraged by not being believed by the teacher (laughs) in third grade. And that's all I remember. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So why? Why those memories? Well, one is example of repetition. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other is example of intensity. Yes. Right. (laughs) That that one memory. (laughs) So if we look back, you know, particularly if we're older and we look back in our childhood, it's very often those things that were done with high repetition or had, you know, a strong memory or something notable to connect with it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, duration is reinforcement over time. Mm -hmm. So if uh, I wanted to teach you something. Okay. Right. Let's say I just, for some reason, want you to know the Japanese word for toilet. Okay. I mean, it might be useful someday. You never know. I could appeal to intensity. I could appeal to frequency or repetition. Uh, If I were to do the latter, I'd say, okay, Julia, I've got your office extension. I've got your home phone. I need your cell phone, your husband's cell phone, and any other phone you might possibly be at because I'm going to call you five times every day for the next seven days and remind you of this little fact, the Japanese word for toilet. Okay. Would you learn this? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, after the third day, you'd be, don't call me anymore. I got it. Okay. I know this. Obenjo. Obenjo. Leave me alone. Okay. So you wouldn't need a full repetition of 35 times in one week. However, if there was no reinforcement over time, if there was no extension, then you might forget that in a number of weeks, months, or years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we all have this experience. It's called cramming, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) We, We need to hold this information in our mind long enough to pass a test, and then there's no actual reinforcement use or application. It will disappear. It's kind of the use it or lose it principle, right? Yeah. I could also say, uh, Julie, I'm going to tell you this one thing, one time, and you're never going to hear it again, right? But if you don't know this one year from now, I will kill you. (laughs) Or more effective would be, I'm going to tell you this one time, and you're not going to hear it again for a year. But if you remember this one year from now, I'll give you $1 million in gold bullion, tax-free. Tax I like that. <laughs> um, actually, the million dollars work better because the fear of death impedes learning. Yes. But that would be an appeal to intensity, mm-hmm. right? And you would be just in your brain. You'd be afraid to go to sleep at night lest you forget this idea. Mm-hmm. So you would just constantly hold it in your consciousness because of the intensity. Most effective— How long do I have to remember this word? One year. I, one year, Okay. Today is all right. I'm gonna check back with you in a year. <laughs> Cash in on my gold bullion. No, no, no. It's death. <laughs> uh, but uh, the the most effective would probably be is if I said I'm gonna call you once a week for the next twenty weeks, mm. because then you're spacing. And Mrs. Ingham with the blended sunset method, 
she understood this perfectly. She said the most important thing in learning anything well is spaced repetition. Mm, mm-hmm. So anyway, that's part of the biology. We'll need to continue this uh, conversation next time yeah, uh, because there's more to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we think about, okay, neurons make connections, they reinforce, reinforce, reinforce until there are semi-permanent or permanent connections – And then there's reinforcement over time, and there's intensity. So I'm hoping that I will not forget that 6 times 7 is 42 until very close to my ultimate demise. Why? Because I use that fact frequently Mm -hmm. enough. So um, those are some thoughts Mm -hmm. uh, about the biology Mm -hmm. of how the mind works. Mm -hmm. We're, We're, of course, discovering more about the brain Every day, sure, and it's it's very exciting. Uh, but when we come back next time, uh, there's some very interesting, almost spooky stories of how very likely we store memories in other parts of our body. Oh, interesting! As well, interesting. And will you give us some tricks of how to improve our memory? Um, yes, actually, uh, I have eight ways that you can improve your memory. Wow! I don't know that I've utilized them all myself. Okay, perfectly. But it, the funny thing is the eight ways from, you know, modern science corresponds pretty much perfectly with uh, Augustine and Aquinas mm. on how to remember things better. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay. So until next week. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. <laughs>